So we are, we're wrapping up our topic from last week. We had a couple of points that, that, uh, that I wanted to get to. Um, again, yeah, as I said at the outset last week, what we want to accomplish with, these, with this series is not to emerge from it having seen the six greatest moments in the history of the state of Israel or the six most uh, you know, fundamental in shaping the history of the country. Um, I am not a historian by trade, and there are way more than six in any case. So what we're trying to do is to pick moments which touch on interesting issues in terms of the formation of the state, and in terms of Jewish ethics and Jewish law. So our first topic was the, was the Nuclear Energy Commission, which Ben-Gurion founded in 1952. And to do a very rapid uh, summary of what we talked about last week, we have the history of the program and of Ben-Gurion's thinking, which went back to before there was a state, and how Ben-Gurion is really driven by fear. His fear, in a sentence, is that the Arabs will perpetrate a second Holocaust. That's what he is afraid of. And he believes in the power... Oh, I forgot to mention, please make sure to silence your phones. The, um, ben, uh, ben Gurion um, believes in the power of the Jewish mind. I sent out the link for the documentary, What's with the Jews, um, yeah, with the follow-up email last week. But Ben Gurion is a big believer in the Jewish mind. He believes that we can balance out what we lack in size and, uh, and in power uh, with the minds of our scientists. So he points out are already providing atomic weapons anyway for the West. So let them, uh, let them provide this for us as well. And that's what he pursues. And over time, into the beginning of the 60s, he succeeds in acquiring atomic reactors, heavy water. We talked about all this last week, and he has it online by the 60s, much to the chagrin of various forces, in particular President Kennedy. We then shifted from the history to talk philosophy, and we asked about whether a commitment to a military path and a military identity is Jewish. Is this something that Judaism would be okay with, particularly when you're talking weapons of mass destruction? Let's not kid ourselves. That you know, it, it's to a certain extent we become glib about it in our you know, in our relief that Israel has, even if it won't admit it publicly, um, this type of a deterrent. But, but don't kid yourself. This is, these are nuclear weapons. This, you know, we, we are, uh, we're horrified by other countries that have and unfortunately will use uh, weapons like this. Um, we have to recognize that we pursued them. Granted, it was pursued defensively. But how do, we, how do we feel about it? And we said that the idea of a defensive war is approved of in Judaism under two different banners, either the banner of self-defense, where we say that an individual who is threatened is supposed to take action first to get rid of whoever is threatening him. And then also in the context of war, we've noted that from Maimonides, this is viewed as a mitzvah war, an obligatory war to, to defend yourself. And we noted there are differences between the two doctrines, whether it's about self-defense or whether it's about national war. For example, in the issue of what you would do regarding civilians and the problem of collateral damage, we're going to talk about that more a little bit this morning. But we talked about Judaism's posture regarding war, and I felt that the best summary line, after all the sources that we saw, was really from Rabbi Maurice Lamb, when he said that Judaism urges peace but is not pacifist, sanctions military action but is not militarist. And I felt that that was exactly it. We have on every ethical issue within Judaism um, two poles, and we oscillate between them and try to find the, uh, the happy medium.
medium. We then dealt with, as our last point, the question of, so how many people would you kill in order to defend a Jewish state? Is there a point where you say the death toll would simply be too high? Better for us to live in exile than for us to, uh, than for us to defend ourselves in that way. And we said that you could look at it and say, I think this was Rona's point last time, that it's a matter of survival for us. It's not like our choice is really between let's have a state or let's just live under the authority of others. Living under the authority of others has not worked out so well for us. Historically, And even if in Canada right now, by and large, we're doing okay, this does not represent the majority of what life in exile has meant for Jews over the last couple of thousand years and running till today. Um, being in exile often means an inability to practice our religion and danger to us, including physical harm. So maybe the argument should not be, well, it's nice to have a state, but how many people are going to to suffer as we defend it, but rather this is about our basic survival as well as the survival of our ideology. And what we said was in the end, after the discussion, we said that, uh, that there is a rationale for defending our state, even if not being aggressive, but defending our state, and if the price is a certain number of lives, then, then, then that's the way it may go. But that leads me to our first of a couple of questions that I wanted to discuss today to wrap up the topic, which is when we talk about nuclear war, we don't really speak in terms of victory, right? The line goes, there's no such thing as a winnable war, right? When you're dealing with nuclear war, you know, and particularly when you have nations like Iran, right, and where they are in terms of a weapon, I will leave to Netanyahu and all the people who want to yell at him. But, the, the, um, but fundamentally, there are nations out there who also are armed with nuclear weapons. And in the event that you lob one towards them, they're going to lob ten back at you. And so the question is, given that nuclear war is not one-sided, but rather will lead to mutually assured destruction, um, do we say we want to have these weapons and we would even be willing to use them even if we won't survive either? That's the, uh, that's the question from a Jewish ethics perspective. This is not new with Torah. This is a question that everybody debates. But from a Jewish perspective, would you say that self-defense holds the same standing and the idea of being able to respond to those who would attack us has the same standing and the same power if we aren't going to survive to see the next day anyway. What would you say? Sorry? There's no purpose. We, we had a, there's no purpose here. Moish. Absolutely. Okay. Now we have an argument. Yeah. Why? What's the logic? Yeah. 
So Moshe's argument is... Moshe's argument is that we need to be able to defend ourselves regardless of the cost it will have, including the cost for us, because for 2,000 years we tried it differently. We made peace, going back to the period with the Romans and Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai's uh, first century agreement with Vespasian, in which he said, we're not going to fight you, although Rabbi Akiva continued to fight anyway. But he said, we're not going to fight you, we just want to make sure that we will survive. And he says, it didn't work, so therefore we should now, uh, we should now try this route of self-defense, even if it means mutually assured destruction. So First of all, besides that we've tried it all, once the first bomb goes, we're not going to be any different than anyone else anywhere. Uh, The first bomb goes, who knows who's going to send it, Korea, whatever. Then somebody's going to retaliate. We retaliate. We're just going to be part of the United States. Whatever countries Right, so I need to clarify my question. My question is not so much a question of where there's a war going on, should we or shouldn't we participate? My question is, for us to have a bomb and be willing to wield it, knowing that if we were ever to use it, we wouldn't see the next day either, does that mean that we shouldn't even bother going that route in the first place? That's my question. My question is not, if everybody's doing this, should we sit the party out, so to speak? Do we want, you say you may die, but from the radiation, look at Japan, for many centuries, we may die anyways. Yeah, but again, the question still comes back to: Should we be should we be looking to launch to have and to launch such weapons? Not talking about where others are doing it. Talking about the question of we would be triggering this. I'm gonna. I, I see a few hands here, but I think what I'm actually gonna do is move forward with it at this point, recognizing that we have another topic still to get to today. The um, If you take a look on your sheet, I carried over the sources we didn't cover last week. So this is from Lord Emmanuel Jacobovitz, who was the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom before Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. There was a chief rabbi there before Rabbi Sachs. It's hard for people to remember at this point. But his essay was part of the Red or Dead discussion that went on in Tradition Magazine in 1962. And he wrote the following. In the words of the rabbis, if a man comes to slay you, forestall by slaying him. This is what we quoted last time. Now this law confers the right of self-defense only if the victim will thereby forestall the anticipated attack and save his own life at the expense of the aggressors. See, kill him before he kills you because you'll survive another day. But the defender would certainly not be entitled to frustrate the attack if this could be done only at the cost of both lives. For instance, by blowing up the house in which he and the robber encounter each other. Right? Think Samson. Right? So Samson is justified in bringing down the Philistine palace because he's going to save a whole bunch of other Jews from the Philistines. But if it's simply a matter of they're attacking me, they're going to kill me, let me me take as many as I can, even as I go, then Rabbi Jacobus is not willing to go that route. He says, presumably, the victim would then have to submit to the robbery and even to death by violence at the hands of the attacker, rather than take, quote, preventive action which would be sure to cause two deaths. 
In view of this vital limitation of the law of self-defense, it would appear that a defensive war likely to endanger the survival of the attacking and defending nations alike, if not indeed of the entire human race, can never be justified. On the assumption then that the choice posed by a threatened nuclear attack would be either complete mutual destruction or surrender, only a second alternative may be morally vindicated. He was not willing to accept the idea that, uh, that we would indeed use weapons in a war which is going to result in our own death as well. Um, philosopher Michael Wishergrad in, uh, in number two makes the same point. He argues both optional and obligatory wars are predicated on the chance of winning. That's where your starting point is. And it only makes sense, as he continues to say, if the Jewish people, or at least a segment of it, can be conceived as surviving the war and enjoying its fruits. That's his, uh, that's his argument. The problem with these arguments, aside from the question of history and how is that policy working out for us, is that we have a history of martyrdom. We have a history of defending not only our lives, but even our values via what's called in Hebrew, Kiddush Hashem, right? Sanctifying God's name at the price of giving up our lives. If in the course of the Crusades, if in the course of the Inquisition, if in the Holocaust, Jews insisted on maintaining their values, maintaining their pride, maintaining their identity, even when it meant losing their lives. So maybe the argument should be that someone comes to attack you, you attack first, and even if you're not going to survive, simply because, going back to Moshe's comment, we're going to defend our name, we're going to defend our identity. Rabbi Yosef Dos Soloveitchik uh, put it in, uh, in an essay after 1967 that it is important to show the world that Jewish blood is not hefker. Right? Hefker means something that is ownerless, unclaimed, and available for anybody to take. So maybe that's really a stance we should look at. Understanding the basic philosophical point that what is, your, what is killing the other guy worth? If I'm not going to survive, maybe the answer is it's worth it just to, to say our values are important, our lives are important, and you can't do this to our, uh, to our nation without paying a price. That will be the flip side argument. I see the hand, Diane, but I'm going to go a little further with it. The, um, if you take a look at source number four, I'm skipping number three, but it makes the same point. Number three is Rabbi Akiva, when he was murdered by the Romans, and he insisted on continuing to teach Torah, knowing that that was going to be the price, knowing that they were going to torture and kill him. The other example here is number four, Rabbi Chinu ben Tradion, which I bring because it, I brought more of the story in the quote. Rabbi Yosef ben Kisma fell ill. Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion went to visit him. This is first century common era. They're living under the Romans. Rabbi Yosef and Kisma actually lived in the city of Rome. Rabbi Yosef and Kisma said, My brother Hanina, don't you know that this nation, meaning the Romans, has been coronated by God? They have destroyed his house and burned his sanctuary, killed his pious ones, and destroyed his best, and still they endure. God must be on their side. And yet, you sit and involve yourself in Torah, you gather people in public, and a Torah scroll is in your lap. Don't you know they're going to murder you? Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion replied, they will have mercy from heaven. They doesn't mean the Romans. It means God will have mercy on me. Rabbi Yosef and Kisma responded, I speak logically. 
and you talk about God having mercy, I will be shocked if they would not burn you and that Torah scroll in flames. And in fact, we know the story. That's exactly what happened. The Romans caught him, they wrapped him up in his Torah scroll, and they lit him on fire. That was how they, uh, that was how they murdered him. But Rabbi Hanina ben Trajo knows that he's going to be paying this price. He knows he's not going to survive. And yet, he says, this is worth doing. It's important that I take a stand. It's important that I declare to the world this is what it means to be a, to be a, a Jew, that we pursue these values no matter what. And so you could make the argument that, yeah, even if it means mutually assured destruction, it's still important for us to survive. I'm sorry, it's still important for us to take that stand. The truth of the matter is that you can go both ways. And I can bring you sources on one side and the other from today until tomorrow. Uh, Rabbi Moses Maimonides in source number 5 speaks of the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, of sanctifying God's name. But for whom is it sanctified if there's no one around to witness it afterwards? Where exactly is the sanctification if no one survives to see it? And then, source number 6, Rabbi Yohan ben Zakkai's decision to make a deal with the Romans... Because he felt better that we should survive, we should go on. So you can, you can bring sources one way or the other. But my point is, this is a live debate. This is a debate that has to be ongoing within Judaism. The question of the value of our survival versus the value of taking a stand. And saying, this is what we stand for and the world has to know it. And you can make the argument both ways. You're dealing with nuclear war. It's not like you can give firm answers. It's everything is on one side or everything is on the other. The truth is it really does go both ways. The last point is the issue of collateral damage. Right? Collateral damage is, of course, a euphemism. What we mean is killing people who aren't your enemy. When you're dealing with nuclear war, and conventional war as well, but certainly we're dealing with nuclear war, you're going to kill people who didn't want to fight you, who had no part in this whatsoever, and yet, they're in the way. In the event that you go back to the doctrine of self-defense, it's not about war. It's about someone wants to kill me, so I'm going to kill him first. Am I justified in killing a civilian in order to defend myself? Right, practical case. Someone walks up to me on the street. He's got a gun. He's about to fire. Right? I can stop him by grabbing somebody else and putting them in the way so they take the bullet instead of me. Is that justified? No. I can stop him by pulling out my own gun and firing indiscriminately. And it will get him and it will get other people also. Am I justified in doing so? Now I'm starting to hear some yeses. What's the difference? I pull out my own gun. That's a difference, yeah. But I know full well. I'm going to fire wildly. I know full well that I'm going to hit other people as well. Am I justified in doing that in order to defend myself? No, I'm defending just myself. He wants to kill me. He doesn't care about everybody else. So here we start to see, right? We we start to see a greater degree of, of discomfort, even if some were still willing to say yes, it's justified because it's my life first. The, um, from a Jewish ethics perspective, historically the answer has been where it's a one-on-one situation, where it's not a war. 
But a one-on-one situation, I'm not justified in saving myself at the expense of somebody else. I'm not justified in taking somebody else's life, a third party who had nothing to do with anything, in order to, uh, in order to save myself. However, that's built into war. If you really believe that, when you're talking on the level of war, then don't go to war with anybody ever. Because it's built in that there are going to be people who are going to be hurt when one nation raises an army and fights the army of another nation. That's the way it works. Unless you're all going to go out to some neutral site and have the soldiers fight it out, right, which is not realistic, they, um, that's the way it's going to be. So take a look at source number seven. The Maharal of Prague. We talked about, years ago, the golem of, of, uh, of Prague and whether it ever existed. So, if it existed, he made it, but it didn't exist. He, he didn't make it. But, um, but source number seven, anyway. He's commenting on a verse from Devarim, from Deuteronomy, which says that when you go to war with a city, you shall call to it for peace. You shall sue for peace. And he says, the verse says, you shall call for peace, but that is where they have not acted upon Israel, if they aren't already attacking you. Where they have acted towards Israel, and he's talking specifically about the story, uh, the story of the city of Shechem, in which Dina was taken captive and raped by the prince of the city, and then Shimon and Levi, her brothers, decided they were going to go to war against the city. So he says, they started with us, they had broken forth doing this repellent thing, then even though only one of them had done it, since they had attacked first, Israel was allowed to respond. So too for all wars, since there were those among the nation who had harmed them, they were permitted to go to war against them. Meaning, you attack me, in a military context, I am allowed to, uh, I'm allowed to, to fight back, knowing that civilians will be harmed, not indiscriminately, Rabbi Usher Weiss the leading legal authority in Israel today, says it still only justifies what you're going to do in order to attack combatants. It doesn't allow indiscriminate attacks on the enemy, but if it's necessary to achieve the, the, uh, the desired military goal, then yes, it's, uh, it's justified. And that tends to be the thought of, uh, of Jewish philosophy in general on this issue, we need to protect our own. Rabbi Avram Shapiro, in source number 8, wrote an essay called War and Ethics. It was a Hebrew essay. I translated it here. When there is no substantive risk to our soldiers, there is no permission to strike lives or property. However, when there is a discernible risk, one must remember that it is not only a matter of weighing one unit opposite a civilian population on the scale. The loss of one unit or part of it can affect the entire battle. In other words, you can't do this as a math problem, right? And say, well, if we attack them, we're going to kill 100 people versus let's you know, not attack them and we'll endanger 20 people from our units, right? If you think back to when Israel went into Janine, right? And, that they, uh, and the, the circumstance there where they took such great steps to avoid harming the civilian population and as a result suffered great losses. Rather than bomb the area from which the terrorists were operating, they went house to house, street to street, building to building, trying to make sure that they would only attack the people who were themselves attacking us and suffered a death toll as a result. So the Rabbi Shapira's point is, you can't say, well, there are 100 people living in this building, and if we go through it one by one, 
then we will suffer ten losses. If we bomb the building, we'll kill a hundred people, so I guess we should suffer our losses. He says, not necessarily, because the calculus isn't one-to-one. The calculus could be what you do to your military morale. The calculus could be how many soldiers do we have to be able to deal with this whole population. The calculus could be even if they are not personally aggressors, they are harboring aggressors. They're being taken advantage of to a certain extent. They're being held hostage by the population, but that's its own discussion. But the point that Rabbi Shapira makes is this is not a one-to-one calculation. And it's supported by an event in Tanakh. The following story, we've talked about briefly the war with Amalek, in which the Jews are told to go destroy the population of Amalek. Shaul Amelach, King Saul, is charged with going to war against Amalek. It's in the book of Shmuel, the book of Samuel, it's somewhere in chapter 15. The, uh, and and um, as he's going to go to war, he sends a message to a population called the Cani. Anyone remember the story? The message that he sends to the Kani? He sends a message to the Kani. He says, He says, Get away from Amalek, lest I destroy you with them. The Kani are friends of ours. The Kani are descendants of Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, who helped the Jews in the wilderness. And he says, You know, we don't want to hurt you, but you're living right among Amalek. So, move away so that we can go to war and not attack you as well. But the implication of his statement is, what if you don't move away? You're going to get hurt. It's the way it goes. They did move away, and so there wasn't the problem. By Yasar Kenny Mitoch Amalek, they did move away. But they, um, but they could have suffered as a result. So, there is a sense of, our bias would be to protect the civilian... But at the same time, if we need to wage this war, if we need to defend ourselves, then we're going to then we're going to do so. Even as we consider the price that comes with it. And I wanted to conclude with source number nine before we move on to our to our other topic. Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein. He said the price of war is also paid by the enemy who is also graced with the divine image, and one should grieve whenever God's creations drown in the sea. On this point, the issue of quantity is meaningful, and one certainly must weigh the justifications for harming many in order to save an individual. Now, someone here read the source in advance when I sent it out, which is nice, and emailed me back saying, you know, the, the Jews are not criticized for singing when the Egyptians drown in the sea. Right? There's no criticism, just the opposite. We play up the song that the Jews sang when the Egyptians drowned in the sea. Because these were their enemies who were trying to kill them. They're allowed to sing. Now, how, at the same time, what Rabbi Lichtenstein is pointing out is that there's still an element of sadness. There's always an element of grief. And it's not good for us. Just for us. Forget for them. It's not good for us to become people who will celebrate um, the, uh, the loss of life. So that when you're dealing with the question of harm to civilians when you engage in nuclear war, the answer has to be that we take into consideration the loss of life of people who aren't engaged in the attack. But at the same time, going back to what we said earlier, our lives are going to come first. 
if it's a matter of my life versus theirs, I may have to weigh quantity and ask, well, how many am I going to kill to save myself? But there is this idea that, yeah, my life will come first. I'm going to now not take questions and comments on this, just again, because we're already halfway through today, and we haven't gotten to topic number two. But as I said last week, and again, those of you who have been in the classes here before know, I'm very happy to continue the discussion by email. Um, and please do continue it with me. All right. Um, for those who have the sheets from last week also, you will recall there's a bibliography there. There are plenty of articles in the bibliography. You can read to your heart's content. Um, I didn't include it on this week's sheet. This week's topic, 